Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com. Mark chapter 9, this is part 2. Last session we covered part 1 of Mark chapter 9 with uh, the transfiguration, but we're going to continue in Mark 9 today with a message titled, Who is the Greatest? And um, I think this will be eye-opening, and it's going to be a little bit different maybe than what you expect or what you've heard in the past, but um, that's good as well. Anything that causes us to search the scriptures, search the heart and mind of God, and and get more into the spirit of what he is wanting to teach us and say to us. So we're going to look at the last half of Mark 9, and I'm going to divide this up into a couple of or three different uh, subheadings. Number one is danger sign number one, arguing over greatness. I'm, you're going to understand these headings as we get into the teaching, because I think this whole teaching and, and most of what Jesus is warning, whenever he gives a warning anyway, it's mostly against the spirit of religion. And that's the, the perspective in which I'm interpreting Mark chapter nine. So danger sign number one is arguing over greatness. Uh, the second is danger sign number two, disputing over sectarianism. So we'll dig into that and you'll understand why I am calling it that because the third section of Mark 9, I'm titling warnings against offense and in brackets, I've got religious offense because that's what I think it is. I think the whole thing is a warning not to go the way of the Pharisees, not to go the way of the religious spirit. And we see a couple of danger signs and then Jesus begins to warn against Religious offense, not just any kind of offense, but I believe against uh, religious offense, causing offense with your religion. Okay, so we will elaborate upon that as we get more into the chapter. But let's begin with Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, picking up where we left off last time. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. Then he took a a little child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So this episode and what will follow is going to constitute, I believe, a couple of danger signs here among um, among the disciples that really sets up the warning for the last part of Mark chapter 9. So I'm calling this danger sign number one, arguing over greatness. And when you look at this in context and consider the context, when Jesus wasn't saving, healing, or delivering the people, Jesus was warning them to be on their guard against the spirit of religion. Now, this mostly took the form of teachings not to be like the Pharisees, not to be like the hypocrites. This also took the form of what I consider to be prophetic parables, and we've done a whole series of teachings on the prophetic parables. 
And all of this is is to illustrate the difference between religion and relationship. And it, it was Jesus exposing the hypocrisy of the religious system of his day, which was organized Judaism, organized religion of his day was Judaism. And it had to do with the temple and the priesthood and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So a a huge part, maybe 50% of his ministry, when he was not saving, healing, and delivering people, casting out devils and, and doing miracles to deliver people, Jesus spent a great deal of time teaching, and a good portion of his teaching was simply illustrating the difference between hypocrisy and true holiness, the difference between religion and relationship, and warning people, as well as warning his disciples, to be on their guard, to watch out, to beware, and we've talked about this in previous messages, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is hypocrisy. So Jesus, in his teaching and in his ministry, it was mostly doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, but it was, it was also a ministry of teaching And it was not simply positive, encouraging teaching, but it was teaching that had to do with warning and confronting the pretentiousness of the Jewish leadership, the the religious leadership of the day. Now, granted, a lot of that was the result of the Pharisees coming against him and attacking him and trying to lure him into saying something or doing something that they could find uh, worthy of accusation, but it really didn't make any difference. Whatever Jesus said, whatever he did, he was accused by the religious leadership of uh, of of not being a follower of Moses, not adhering to the laws of Moses, and uh, breaking the Sabbath, and and not fasting and and all of the of these accusations the Pharisees leveled against the Lord Jesus and by this time they had already decided that he needed to be destroyed because he was among other things working on the Sabbath which meant um, in other words he was healing people on the Sabbath doing miracles and mighty works on the Sabbath day and somehow they interpreted that to mean breaking the Sabbath. So for a lot of of reasons, mostly jealousy and hypocrisy and just the religious spirit, they were highly motivated to to get rid of Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. And so a lot of what we learn is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. You know, in, in the next chapter we're going to see that once again they came to him and they began to ask him about marriage and divorce. Previously, they've asked him about washing hands and about fasting and uh, keeping the Sabbath and all of these uh, rules and regulations that they are trying to test him to see how he would respond. And more often than not, the, the response that they received was, uh, came in the form of warning everybody else, don't be like these hypocrites. <laughs> so taking that into consideration as Jesus sees within his own disciples uh, the very signs of hypocrisy, the very signs of religion that he is warning everyone to be on their guard against. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And now uh, we we begin to see it in his own disciples arguing over who would be the greatest. And so it simply illustrates once again what I've said repeatedly of the subtlety of the spirit of religion. And it's it's really amazing to me as well that how many people they just they don't see the subtlety of the spirit of religion. They don't see it as a beast. They don't see the harlot church. They don't see the the whore of Babylon. They don't see the adultery, the the spiritual adultery and the spiritual fornication that the religious system commits in the name of God against God, they don't see that. All they see is, well, these people are 
they're going to church or they're they're worshiping God the best they can or the best that they know how. They don't see the danger. They don't see the leaven. They don't see the spirit of religion at work, and they don't understand and, and fully appreciate how that spirit of religion enters in and leads us away from the simplicity of Christ. And it starts right here with the disciples on the road arguing over who among them would be the greatest. So religion, I believe, is the enemy of relationship. I believe that what God wants and what he's always wanted is a relationship, not a religion. Jesus did not come to establish a religion, but he came to establish a relationship. And we have that relationship with God by entering into a relationship with God's Son. Live in me, Jesus says, I will live in you. Uh, Religion is the enemy of that. Religion wants to bring you into a relationship with it. A relationship with the church, a relationship with the denomination, a relationship with the pastor or with the pope or the presbytery or whatever the, the religious leadership is. But we see it very graphically demonstrated in the Gospels that religion is the enemy of Jesus. Religion is the enemy of Jesus. Therefore, religion is the enemy of all those who would have a relationship with Jesus. You see religion entering into the minds and the hearts of people, even in John 4, where Jesus is there sitting uh, at the well talking with the woman about uh, living water. And she throws a religious question at him. Well, the Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, but our people, the Samaritans, say that it's here in this mountain that people ought to worship God. And uh, Jesus said it's not in Jerusalem, and it's not in this mountain. It's in spirit and in truth. And that is the nature of relationship. The nature of relationship is that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth, and the Father seeks those who would worship him in spirit and truth. And so it has nothing to do with place, nothing to do with building, nothing to do with meetings, nothing to do with this mountain or in Jerusalem. But it is the nature and the spirit of religion to make a big deal about the place. What do you do? Where do you meet? Who do you meet with? How often do you meet? Where do you meet? It's all about the meeting. And so religion is very focused on these details, these external details, the minutia of meetings. And Jesus says that has nothing to do with what the Father is looking for. Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he didn't say Jerusalem is the place. He didn't say this mountain is the place. He didn't say church is the place. He said the place to worship God is that place of relationship in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks those who will worship him in that way. So religion is the enemy of relationship. And the devil uses religion. Religion is the most potent weapon of the devil because the devil uses religion to steal, kill, and destroy our spiritual life. Jesus says, A thief comes not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's the life and the abundance of this spirit and truth relationship with the Lord. But the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy that, and the best way to do it is to lead us astray from the simplicity of Christ. And so we, we I, I constantly go back to Paul's warning to the Corinthians. He says, I'm afraid for you that just as Eve was deceived by the devil with all of his subtlety, that you also would be led astray from the simplicity of Christ. And so religion is the masterpiece of the devil used to lead us astray from the simplicity of Christ. Now, you either see that or you don't, um, but you can't argue against it. It's scriptural. It's it's the evidence is right there. You can look around uh, in, in the world today, even without the scriptural support, and see that religion is the enemy of a spirit and truth relationship. Religion does more to get in the way of that relation, of that relationship than anything else. And you see in the book of Revelation, which we've talked about previously and in the teaching series on the book of Revelation, that the strategy of the devil, when he realizes his time is short, he goes to make war with the saints. 
And how does he make war with them? He creates this religious system described as a beast and also as a harlot to lead us astray from the simplicity of Christ. Because if God's own people have been led astray from the simplicity of Christ, then we certainly can't bring the testimony of Jesus to the rest of the world. And so uh, that is, that's the, the methodology. That's the modus operandi of the devil. It's to use religion to steal, kill, and destroy our spiritual life and lead us away from the simplicity of Christ. And therefore, keep the nations in bondage, keep them in the dark. As Keith Green would say, we are asleep in the light. So we have the light, we have the truth, but it's very easy for the devil, it seems, to come in and use religion to lead us away from the simplicity of Christ, and so we are actually asleep in the light. Well, the first danger sign is that the disciples are arguing over which of them would be the greatest. You know, not too long ago, when Jesus first called Peter and the other disciples, when Peter had that initial revelation of Christ, and that was when they had spent all night fishing, and Jesus says, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and and you'll find the fish that you've been looking for. And then they caught so many fish that they could hardly bring the net to shore. And when Peter saw this miracle, he realized he was in the presence of holiness. And he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says, have no fear from, from now on. You will be a fisher of men. Well, we've come a long way, haven't we? From depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man, to arguing and disputing with the other disciples about which one of them would be the greatest. (laughs) So once again, you see the subtlety of pride and arrogance, but what is fueling that? It's the spirit of religion that fuels that. It's not just ordinary pride. It's not just ordinary lifting yourself up. It is lifting yourself up in the context of religion. Under the veil of spirituality, the devil is able to tempt us and lift us, get us lifted up in pride. And so I would say this is the first danger sign here, that exactly what Jesus said was going to happen is beginning to happen if we're not on guard, if we're not guarding be and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, if we're not aware of that. Then we just accept everybody and everything and and just figure that they all love Jesus equally, then we're going to find ourselves sucked into this spirit of religion. And one of the first danger signs is arrogance and pride, arguing over which of them would be the greatest. And the only way that you can measure that is according to fleshly measurements. And we do that today uh, in, in the religious system. The churches that are big and the pastors that have have more followers and have more money and 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 are more are, are greater in terms of fleshly measurements. These are the ones that we look at and we follow and we tend to hold up as examples of success. But according to what measurement? According to the world's measurement. So if someone's on television And they have an audience of several thousand and they have five services a day and they've got a multi-million dollar budget. Then according to the fleshly measurement of things, they must be one of the greatest. But it's not wise, Paul says, to measure yourselves against yourselves. And instead, Christ Jesus is really the measurement against which God is is measuring us. It's to the extent that we are conformed to the image of Christ. And so what Jesus is telling them is he is trying to bring them back around to the basics of relationship. That it's nothing to do with being the greatest. It's about being last. It's not about being served. It's about serving others. And it's about receiving others. He says that whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, this is all about a relationship. It's receiving others in his name and receiving him and receiving him who sent him, 
which is the father. So this is the best defense against greatness. Humility is the best defense against hypocrisy. But when you begin to to track the attendance, when you begin to attract the budget, how much money has been collected, when you begin to boast in how many churches and how many people, as uh, as has been said, you start counting nickels and noses, then you're you're beginning to take this path towards the spirit of religion. This is how the world measures success. How many people are on the mailing list? How many friends and followers does the ministry have? How many supporters and contributors? How many books have been written and published? How many people attend the services? So it's very tempting, isn't it, to look on these things and then to measure these things according to the world, but I would suggest that we're using the wrong measuring stick because it's not about how great we can become. It's about how little we can become. It's about how we can become less so that Christ can become more. It's about he must increase, it says in John 3.30, but I must decrease. So it's not about us increasing at all. It's about us decreasing and getting out of the way so that Christ can increase. And religion takes us in the opposite direction. It tries to build us up, build the the spiritual leader up, build the congregation, build the building that the congregation will meet in. And all of these things rooted in a very simple sin of pride. They disputed uh, disputed among themselves who would be the greatest among them. Well, that brings us to danger sign number two. And it kind of flows right with the first, which is very interesting. We begin reading again in verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus says, said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So I'm calling this danger sign number two, disputing over sectarianism, and one flows into the other, because the religious spirit is not content just to make us great among others in our group, but wants to make our group great among others. Now think about that. The religious spirit is not content just to make us great among others in our group, but wants to make our group great among others. (laughs) So yeah, of course, I want to be known as the greatest person in my group. And then, of course, I want my group to be greater than any other group. And so uh, we can refer to this as sectarianism. Another way to refer to it or think of it as is as denominationalism. All the different sects and all the different denominations of churchianity are, are more numerous. I mean, really, the, the Jewish religion, the organized religion of Jesus' day, he only really had to contend with three or four sects within Judaism. Well, today, the many-headed beast of organized religion and churchianity, we don't have three or four denominations, three or four sects. We have thousands And if you trace the beginning of those groups, usually it's because they believe they had some piece of the truth that other people didn't have. They wanted to preserve that particular truth or doctrine or teaching. And so they created their own denomination, their own movement, their own their own sect, their own group, their own fellowship. And it all comes down to wanting to forbid other people who don't believe like we do. And having a way 
to create members that are, and in the name of like-mindedness, I love that phrase, like-minded believers, a fellowship of like-minded brethren and sistren. <laughs> and, and so how do you measure like-mindedness? Well, here's a list of 25 fundamental truths or 10 basic principles that we measure like-mindedness. In other words, you think like we do and you agree with us and believe the same things we believe. Instead of like-mindedness being the way Paul defined it as, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. And that whole mind that was in Christ Jesus The whole point of it was that he made himself of no reputation and humbled himself and took upon him the form and the fashion of a man and of a servant. That's like-mindedness. Like-mindedness has nothing to do with agreeing to a list of rules and regulations and beliefs and doctrines that some committee came up with, and then we have like-mindedness. So long as we check off all all of the boxes on the agreement, the doctrinal statement, oh, then then we are a group of like-minded believers. Once again, measuring ourselves by ourselves instead of measuring ourselves against the standard of Christ and the mind of Christ. Instead, we want to not just be great among others in our group, but we want to make our group great among others, and our group great compared to others. And so this is danger sign number two, and you see it happening here in even in the disciples of Jesus. We saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. See, and missing the point that if someone really is casting out demons in the name of Jesus, then they're doing a good thing, not a bad thing. But see, they're being sucked into the very religious spirit that Jesus has warned them against, but it's the very religious spirit of the Pharisees coming in to steal, kill, and destroy them because they don't follow the teachings of the Pharisees. So we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but it is a spirit of religion working through religious people to try to suck us us into their drama And Jesus was never drawn into that drama, but he always spoke the truth and he exposed them for what they were, hypocrites. But observe the arrogance of the disciples here, that that they were in a position to judge someone else and to permit them or to forbid them because they don't follow us. I mean, who, who gave them that authority? Did Jesus give them that authority? Where did they get the idea that it was up to them to judge someone else who doesn't follow them and tell them that they're not allowed to use the name of Jesus to cast out demons without their permission? (laughs) Well, once again, you're not part of our group. Therefore, you can't you cannot use the name of Jesus to cast out demons. And it's, it's especially interesting considering that they had. Just recently, I mean, just just a few verses prior to this, they themselves had failed to cast out a demon, right? <laughs> so now here's someone that's not part of their group, and this fellow, whoever he is, he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And so there's a little bit of jealousy at work here as well. So it's not just, it's not just pride. It's also some jealousy, I think. And here's someone doing what we tried to do and failed. And so <laughs> he's not part of our group. So we for, we for, forbid him to cast out demons using the name of Jesus. Missing the whole point, of course. But th- that is another manifestation of the spirit of religion, another danger sign. Our group is right and everybody else is wrong. We have the truth and no one else has the truth. 
And the spirit of religion loves to con- loves to try and control. It's all about control and getting people within its control and then being threatened by those that it cannot control. And that's what's happening here. Well, if you want to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, you've got to be part of our group so that we can establish who among us is going to be the greatest and we can have control. And all of this talk about submission and authority and who's the head of the church and yada, yada. It's always about control. And so Jesus warns them and actually says, don't forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. If they're not against us, then they're for us. So Jesus says, don't forbid him. If he's helping people, if he's if he's really casting out demons using my name, then he's helping to set people free. That's in alignment with my mission and my purpose. It's in alignment with God's will. So don't forbid him. Now, you see people who are doing things in the name of Jesus that are contrary to the will of God and contrary to the scriptures and contrary to the truth and does more damage than good, causes more harm than help then sure you should forbid him. You should speak out against it. But in this case, here's somebody that's casting out demons. He's helping to set people free. He's given he's, He is giving Jesus the glory. People are being set free. That's in alignment with God's will and God's purpose. And Jesus says, don't forbid him. So apparently, God is able to work through people in ways we might not necessarily approve of. But Jesus is looking at the fruit. If he's really working miracles in my name, then he's on our side. <laughs> now, today, the, the issue is, are, are they really miracles or are they uh, magic tricks? And a lot of what you see is magic tricks. It's not genuine uh, miracles at all. But in this passage, at least, it's taken for granted that the man is actually casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And the problem is not that he's casting them out. There's no question about the the efficacy of his ministry. The question and the problem and the objection is that he's not part of us. He doesn't he doesn't follow us. He's not a member of the original 12 disciples. And therefore, we forbade him. (laughs) Jesus says, God is able to work through people in ways that you might not approve of. God's got a great big plan, and it's bigger than it's bigger than just the 12. It's bigger than just our group, bigger than just our little fellowship of like-minded people. But God is doing many things in the earth through many different people, whether they are affiliated or not. <laughs> so he says, don't forbid them. Do not forbid him. So that's encouraging to me and to you. But what this leads up to is a warning now against causing offense. And in this context, it's the reason why I'm I'm putting in brackets warning against religious offense, because the bottom line is what's happening here is these is is the disciples are becoming religious. Now, I again, if if this is the first time you have ever heard me teach, and it's very possible that someone's here, you've never heard me teach these things. You may think this sounds so alien to anything you've ever heard. You've always equated religion to being something good. And I I have learned by the Spirit of God and through the study of Scripture that religion is the enemy of Jesus, not the friend of Jesus. Religion is idolatry. Religion is hypocrisy. Religion does not lead us to Jesus. Religion gets in the way of Jesus. And that there is a spiritual fellowship and body of Christ called the Ecclesia that is spiritual, spirit and truth, not connected with any religious organization or institution, not defined in terms of geography, but in terms of spiritual relationship. Because it was the spirit of religion working through Judaism that sought to destroy Jesus. 
It wasn't the world or the sinners or the publicans or the or the Romans initially that were against Jesus. It was the religious leadership. So religion is the enemy of Jesus. And it becomes all the more clear when you consider the parables and consider the fact that Jesus warned that we must be on our guard against the leaven. The kingdom of God is like a woman who took the leaven and it permeated the whole lump. And that that is a negative. It's a warning of how hypocrisy and the spirit of religion would enter in and spoil the relationship and the purity and the simplicity of Christ. And that's exactly what has happened here. We are 2000 years later and our religious system is many thousands of times worse than the religious system in Jesus day. So Jesus warns them in verse 42, again, resuming with Mark chapter nine in our reading verse 42 But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, how is this a warning against religious offense? Well, the, the first thing that we have to address is the tendency that you and I have that we have been trained by centuries of religious teaching, that whenever we see the word hell in scripture, we've been trained to associate that idea of hell with the eternal punishment of sinners. It's those bad, wicked, lost sinners, those evil people, those unbelievers, they are the ones who are going to burn in hell And since that is the dominant view in the religious system, because it is a system that is based on fear and control and using the threat of hell and the threat of eternal punishment, the organized religion, churchianity, the harlot church system has successfully used fear to control the masses, to punish to excommunicate, to threaten, and even to gain members and to keep members through the threat of hell and through the threat of eternal punishment. So it's natural whenever we see the word hell in scripture, depending on our the depth of our religious programming, We've been trained to associate it with the eternal punishment of sinners. And we read it and we say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. That's for all those lost, wicked, bad people out there that haven't accepted Jesus as their personal savior or haven't joined the Catholic Church. Depending on what flavor of churchianity you happen to be. So it's, it's interesting when you set that aside and begin to study the scriptures, you begin to see a different picture emerging. One that indicates Jesus typically connected hell with hypocrisy, not with the wicked. Unless you consider hypocrites to be wicked. And there's um, evidence of that as well. But Jesus never used hell as a way to frighten 
sinners that they better hurry up and get saved. He never used hell as a means to frighten people into receiving Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. I mean, that's kind of like, that, that would be sort of like extortion, wouldn't it? Receive me as your personal Lord and Savior because I love you and I want to have a relationship with you. But if you don't, I'm going to put you in a burning pit of fire and torture you for eternity. Wow, what an offer. Hmm, which one should I choose? See, that's the way religion has presented it, and I think that they've got it completely I, I think they I think they've got it completely wrong, to be quite frank with you. In all the places that Jesus talks about hell, he's usually talking about hypocrisy, and he's usually usually making a very a very literal prophetic announcement and warning that had to do with the fiery death of Judaism in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It's a very literal fulfillment, and it happened as a result of them rejecting Christ as the Messiah, rejecting, specifically, rejecting Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the whole tenor of the the, the prophetic declarations and the parables, everything had to do with entering the kingdom of God, which which is embracing Christ as Messiah, because he, he came first and foremost to the lost sheep of Israel. But there was a very literal, fiery death and destruction that they were heading toward that Jesus wanted and hoped that they would avoid by embracing him. But it did not work out to be that way because they did, by and large, reject him. And so that, that destruction came and the temple was burned and Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70 within a generation of, of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So in this judgment... And this fire and death, there's a very literal fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. I mean, one of the most pronounced and obvious connections between hell and hypocrisy is Matthew 23:33. That whole chapter of Matthew 23. It's woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he he just blisters them for their hypocrisy. And he says, you snakes, how will you escape the damnation or the judgment of hell or Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom, which is a very literal place, a very literal valley south of Jerusalem where they threw out the garbage. And that became symbolic of death and destruction. And there was fires burning all the time to destroy the the dead bodies and the garbage and the refuse and everything that they tossed out. This was a landfill that was constantly burning with fire. And that's established in the Old Testament. The Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. So Jesus there, and in many of his parables and teachings, he's very literally connecting hell with hypocrisy, but hell is that literal place outside of Jerusalem where they would cast the dead bodies. And whatever the fire didn't burn up, the worms would consume just the way a a, a landfill operates today, often in a subterranean manner. So, you know, that's a little bit different from the way the religious system teaches it. Either they don't understand the ramifications of it, or they do understand, but they get more mileage out of applying it to 
sinners and scaring them into getting saved or scaring saints into giving to the church. But the fact that three times Jesus references their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, those are direct references to Isaiah 66, the very last chapter in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating chapter. As Isaiah saw very clearly a new heavens and a new earth and what I call the great reversal, and it's where the Gentiles, all flesh, will see the glory of God. And it talks about people who don't even know the Lord, that they will see his glory and they will all come to Jerusalem and they will worship him. But it says outside of Jerusalem are the bodies of all the people that rebelled against him. And if you read the context, beginning in the first part of Isaiah 66, it's talking about hypocrisy. It's talking about people that are supposed to be God's people and yet they're not worshiping God. They're committing idolatry. So that whole thing there of Isaiah 66 is talking about the Messianic age. And it is parallel for us in the book of Revelation where it says that God sat on his throne and declares, Behold, I make all things new. And there we are rejoicing in the new Jerusalem. And outside of that is the lake of fire. So once again, the worm in the fire is a reference to the messianic kingdom, the people being cast out. And Jesus picks up on that theme several times in his parables. And several times very directly warns them with that code phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're going to weep and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and people coming from north, south, east, and west to eat in the kingdom of God, to sit down in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. That's what it's referring to, the casting out of hypocrites from the kingdom of God. That's where the weeping and the gnashing of the teeth come from. Now, if this is the first time you've heard this, then your mind is probably spinning and you're trying to figure all this out and reconcile it with what you've been taught. I'm saying don't try to reconcile it with what you've been taught because what you've been taught is tainted with the spirit of religion. Reconcile it with scripture, not with what religion has taught you. Reconcile it with the words of Jesus. Reconcile it with the parables of Jesus. Reconcile it with the prophetic word of God. Don't try to reconcile it with what the Catholic Church has taught you or what the Protestant Church has taught you. And certainly don't try to reconcile it with some movie or book or something that you've seen on Christian television. Now, we know that Jesus is is being is using hyperbole here. Certainly, he is not literally suggesting that we can cut off our hand or cut off our foot or gouge out our eye in order to enter the kingdom of God. But what is he talking about? Well, he's warning his disciples. Again, these words are spoken to his disciples. He's not preaching to sinners out on in the street. He's not talking to winos and prostitutes and, and Satan worshipers and all of these bad people out in the world. He's warning his disciples. Why? Because they're beginning to show signs of this religious spirit. They've been following Jesus around for a while, and now they're starting to get a little bit of that spirit of religion is trying to enter in. It's not coming from Jesus. Where is it coming from? It's coming from their adversary, the devil, who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So Jesus is warning his disciples to be ready to cut off everything that causes others to stumble. The whole thing is, don't cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. And that's exactly what the religious spirit has done. That's what the priesthood has done. That's what the pastors have done. All the people who have been hurt have been turned away from the Lord. All the people who look on that religious system and they say, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I don't want anything to do with him. And so they have caused these little ones to stumble And so Jesus is saying, do not allow that spirit of religion to rise up in you to the point that you cause other people to stumble. 
but cut it off. Because if you don't, then he's saying what's going to happen is you're going to suffer the same fate as the Jews, which is basically exclusion from the Messianic age. You're going to be cast out. And these the, the phraseology is, is different. Sometimes it's cast out. Sometimes it's outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But all of these parables pretty much say the same thing, and all the warnings are pretty much the same thing. That if you're going to follow after me, it's going to be on the basis of spirit and truth. You'll take up your cross and deny everything else and cut off everything that causes others to stumble, cut off everything that causes you to sin. Specifically, cut off that spirit of religion. Because if you don't, you're going to suffer the same consequences as the Pharisees, who I said, how will you escape the damnation of hell? So this is a warning. It's a warning to the disciples then, and it's a warning to you and to me today, not to allow the spirit of religion to spoil our relationship with Jesus, to ruin our testimony, to cause other people to stumble, and to allow pride and arrogance to prevent others from entering into that abiding relationship with Jesus. So the spirit of religion has no real power. The only power it has is from arguing over who is the greatest and which group is right and which group is wrong. So Jesus warns his disciples and he's warning us, both in his parables and in his teachings, that the leaven of religion would threaten the simplicity of a love relationship with God. So how do we prevent that? Well, Jesus shows us that humility is the best defense against hypocrisy. Humility is the best defense against hypocrisy. Who is the greatest among them? Well, the answer is none of them, because the kingdom of God is not about disciples becoming great, but about Christ having preeminence. The kingdom, the power, and the glory is not for us. It's for him. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at chiprogden.com.